This week on the Pressure Cast, Nintendo eyes up the Chinese market, Player Unknown disapproves of Fortnite, and it's the 200th episode of the Pressure Cast! Pressure Pals, welcome to the 200th episode of the Pressure Cast, the weekly video game news panic that posts every single Monday on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, TuneIn Radio, Google Play Music, and America's longest running independent newspaper at shepherdexpress.com. My name is Colin Tanner, and I'm caffeinated, so caffeinated, and really dang excited to talk to you about video games because we have a pretty serious week today. Week, week today. That didn't actually make any sense. Well, it will make sense because we're covering a full week of news today. Or I, I guess maybe you're not listening to this uh, today. You might be listening to it in the future. It's not important, I swear. But we do have a lot to talk about in the uh, hype train. We're going to be talking about the Tokyo Game Show news. And then we're going to be talking about Nintendo potentially heading over to China in the chart park. And they'll be wrapping it all up talking about the Nintendo 64 in strong history, which is 21 years old this week. True story. Just get your Nintendo 64 out and just pour an IPA into it. Why not? But before we get to all that, a bit of a rant. See, there's a story that I wanted to say for the chart park, which of course is where we talk about the legal business and financial news, but it was so good, I wanted to cover it right up front. So remember last week when we were discussing the brand new Battle Royale mode for Fortnite? Well, in case you don't know, it's a lot like Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. You've got a hundred players dropped into a big environment, they collect weapons to kill each other, and it's a good time, apparently. I don't know, I haven't really uh, played the uh, Fortnite version yet. And if you think I'm exaggerating about the comparisons, listen to this. This is actually from the Epic Games blog post where they announced this brand new mode. Here's what they said, quote, we love Battle Royale games like PUBG, which stands for Player Unknown Battlegrounds. We're going to be saying PUBG a lot, so get used to that. And thought Fortnite would make a great foundation for our own version, end quote. So there you have it. Pretty cut and dry. But uh, so far, almost everyone has been pretty happy regarding this brand new mode. Or at least neutral on the subject. Maybe they're like, eh, whatever. I don't really care. But one subject in particular has been a little miffed. And it's been none other than developer Bluehole, the developers of PUBG, the makers behind Battlegrounds. And they happened to uh, respond to this news by putting out their own press release, expressing their, I don't know, displeasure. Uh, here's some statements from the vice president of Bluehole, Ching Han Kim. This is going to be a long quote, but it's all for context, so listen to it. Quote, after listening uh, to the growing feedback of our community and reviewing the gameplay for ourselves, we are concerned that Fortnite may be replicating the experience for which PUBG is known. We have noticed that Epic Games references PUBG and the promotion of Fortnite to their community and in communications with the press. This was never discussed with us, and we don't feel that it's right. The PUBG community has continued to provide evidence of many similarities as we contemplate further action, end quote. 
further action. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, some of these comments uh, were in a in the press release were actually pulled directly from a Reddit Ask Me Anything with Kim. So clearly, Bluehole wanted to get this out into the news cycle while also putting it into a public conversation. They, they had this whole Ask Me Anything on Reddit, and then they took that and they released it on a press release. But the question is, Why? Well, as many have already pointed out, the uh, the Blair Unknown Battlegrounds game isn't exactly original. So it's a little weird that they're calling them out because Player Unknown Battlegrounds was originally developed as a mod for DayZ. And even then, it was you know heavily influenced by H1Z1's King of the Kill, albeit PUBG is a much better version of that. Not to mention, Battlegrounds runs on Unreal Engine, which of course is owned by and licensed through Epic Games the developers of Fortnite. But uh, we'll get to all that in, in just a moment. But let's dig deep into this question. What exactly does Bluehole own? And could they actually take further action? What does further action generally mean? Well, most people are taking this to mean some sort of legal recourse. Well, okay. Could Bluehole sue Epic Games? Yes. They absolutely could. Not because they would win the case, but because you can sue for anything. They're giant corporations. Of course, they have entire teams of lawyers. They get paid uh, regardless. Might as well have them do something. <laughs> Go sue that guy. All right, cool. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but should they sue Epic Games? Well, that's an entirely different question altogether. And to get that answer, we have to go all the way back to the 1980s. I know we're going a little off course here, but trust me, this is all related. We have to go back to the 1980s and talk about a little game called Karate Champ. Now, I remember Karate Champ. It was a neat little game that was in the arcades and eventually was on the NES and a bunch of other systems where you had two guys that stood at the opposite ends of a screen uh, and they could each be controlled by a different player and they would uh, they would approach each other and they would exchange melee strikes, punches and kicks and, and low kicks and jump kicks. Pretty original concept, if you ask me. If only there was a term for when two people meet in the center to punch each other. Maybe you could even push someone into the corner. I don't know. Maybe it'll come to me later. Uh, but a couple of years later came International Karate, which was uh, made by Epex. And it was also known as a Karate World Championship here in the United States. So maybe you've played it. And to say it was a homage or homage <laughs> of Karate Champ would be putting it mildly. Everything from two guys fighting to even the colors of their geese were identical. Low kicks, jump kicks, uh, you had the judge outside there that was scoring everything. It was identical. And you know what that means? It's time for a lawsuit. Data East claimed Epex had stolen their concept wholesale and had infringed on their intellectual rights. Well, a Northern California District Court agreed and all copies of World Karate Championship were removed from store shelves. And now, considering that this was a game that sold rather well for Epex, Epex quickly appealed the case and it moved on to the Ninth Circuit Court. Now, Epex's lawyers argued that they weren't stealing a game, they were solely working within a genre, as defined by the Scenes Unfair Doctrine, which, in case you don't know, basically means that the similarities were merely part of a creative structure. You couldn't make this particular type of game without barring some elements uh, from uh, Karate Champ. Those were inherent to the genre. Furthermore, the concept itself was of a karate tournament and was mimicking the activities of such an event. And so the Ninth Circuit Court agreed, siding with Epex. Now, Data East was, of course, miffed. 
But when they noticed a popular game called Street Fighter 2, they quickly jumped on board and they created their own ripoff of Street Fighter 2 called Fighter's History. And wouldn't you know it, Capcom tried to sue them. But the precedent that had already been set by Data East losing a lawsuit was exactly what they used to avoid a lawsuit. And before it could even uh, go into the uh, preliminary injunction, it was dismissed outright. So Data East lost the lawsuit, and then they used that loss to avoid a lawsuit. Does that make sense? Basically, yes. I hope it does. <laughs> so what exactly happened to Epex? They won. They were able to release all those copies of World Karate Championship, so obviously they must all be billionaires now. Well, not exactly. They were rather busy in the uh, second half of the 1980s developing the world's first color portable handheld in the Atari Lynx before folding all together in 1993. Sad story. R.I.P., you strangely prolific company. Anyway, the biggest takeaway from the Karate Champ lawsuit came down to a single concept, that a 17 and a half year old could tell the difference between the games. Now, this was because games were generally considered to be for kids, teenagers, and this is real. The court used that as a reference, saying, okay, if a 17 and a half year old can tell the difference between these two titles then no, you don't own this other game. So ask yourself, could a 17 and a half year old tell the difference between Fortnite and player unknown battlegrounds? Answer is yes. Anyone could. They don't even look remotely alike. I mean, one has like purple skies and has all these building platforms and the other one's kind of like, you know, SOCOM, but more collecting stuff and you know what I mean. So what does Blue Hole own exactly? Well, they own player unknown Battlegrounds, that's it. Unless Epic directly lifted code and put it into Fortnite, there's no case here. Now, before we move on, let's take a look back at Silicon Knights. Why are we bringing up them? Well, you'll find out in a second. You remember Silicon Knights, don't you? They made great games like Eternal Darkness and not so good games like well, every other game that they made. But back in 2007, they were fed up with Epic Games. Silicon Knights had purchased a license for Unreal Engine 3 for use in their games, but they sued Epic, claiming the engine didn't work properly, which is actually a bit insane considering all the games that were made on Unreal Engine 3 last generation and still continue to be made in Unreal Engine 3. But uh, boil it down to one idea. They basically boil it down to this one concept that Epic had kept all of the really cool tricks for themselves. Unreal could do all this neat stuff because they knew how to uh, use the uh, the engine in certain ways and they were not sharing that information with the rest of the development community. So the rest of the developers, even though they're paying for it, they're getting screwed over. Now there was only one problem with this. <laughs> Silicon Knights had actually borrowed code from Epic. So when Epic's lawyers were, were trying to, uh, you know, battle this case, they actually had to see Epic, or they had to see the uh, Silicon Knights code for themselves. And they noticed like, hey, this is directly from us. We don't sell this part of the code. You've copied and pasted, not literally, these ideas into your code. And uh, of course that is owned by Epic. So Epic countersued, they won $4.45 million and the court ordered all the copies of Two Human and X-Men Destiny, which were the current Silicon Knight games, to be removed from store shelves and to be destroyed. Yes, really. Not to mention all future projects using Unreal Engine uh, by Silicon Knights were to cease production immediately. Yikes. Now, unsurprisingly, Silicon Knights ended up in bankruptcy only 18 months after the ruling. So, just a heads up, Blue Hole. 
maybe don't go pointing fingers at Epic just yet. They have very good lawyers, and they have at least destroyed one company through a lawsuit. I mean, really, they... They had to. It's not just the $4.45 million. It's the fact that they had games that they haven't sold yet being removed from store selves and three unreleased projects being canceled outright. That's really painful. So why the hell did Blue Hole send out this press release? Well, who knows? Uh, I guess they don't want Epic mentioning their name in, in future press releases. You know, I mean, they got a compliment from Epic that was just like, hey... We're using this concept. You might have heard of it. It's really popular right now with games like Player Unknown Battlegrounds. And and Blue Hole says, no, no more of that. Do not mention us. Keep our names out of your mouth, I guess. But it's worth pointing out <laughs> that just because you advertise your own competition doesn't mean you can get sued whatsoever. There's plenty of commercials back in the day that used to show Coke and Pepsi and, and things like that. But the reason that they couldn't get sued is because... the it was it was to demonstrate something. In fact, if you're wondering why don't more uh, products these days do that sort of comparison, like Tide versus other detergents, it's because they found out in studies that it it, it actually increases people's likelihood to actually try the competition. <laughs> so I'm not sure what Blue Hole's case is right here. I guess maybe they don't want people knowing that there's a Battlegrounds type game on consoles right now. But Blue Hole, just relax. Just relax, enjoy your success, ride the wave. You have a really popular game. When you put out statements like this, you're only drawing more attention to a game that you don't want people playing. All right, we uh, we have a lot to get to, but I hope you enjoyed that story. So now it's time to get on the train. Chug 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 chug. Here comes the train. Tooty toot toot. Beep, beep. That's right, it's time for the Hype Train. Feel the PR vibrations as we barrel towards Video Game Satisfaction Station on the Hype Train. This is the part of the show we talk about all the upcoming video games and events to get you hyped up to spend all your money and become a video game guru. And we're going to be starting off this Hype Train talking about Konami's next game, because who expected yet another Konami game? Sure, they're making Metal Gear Survive, and of course they're going to be making, you know, uh, what is it called? Pro Evolution Soccer, because that prints a lot of money. But yes, they announced yet another title at the Tokyo Game Show, uh, which, by the way, is going to be the majority of the news because there was a lot of announcements there. But anyway, Konami has announced Zone of Enders, the second runner, Mars. And of course, the A in Mars is upside down because it's symbolic for Mars. I don't know. Now, according to the press release, this will be an updated version of the 2002 PlayStation 2 title. That's what they said in their press release, which is already kind of a problem because the game actually came out in 2003. <laughs> I mean, worldwide. Sorry, copywriter. I know that you're trying your best, but you didn't get your information right. Uh, but it will support native 4K resolution and enhanced audio when it arrives on the PlayStation 4 and Steam. But here's the catch, it's also coming to PlayStation VR. For those of you unfamiliar, Zone of Enders is centered around giant mech suit battles with missiles and laser swords. It sounds like Gundam, but it's more like, I don't know, uh, sleeker Gundam? They're like thinner things. I, I, I think one of them's called Jehudi. <laughs> I played the games back in the day. Uh, but this is primarily played from a third person's perspective. However, the brand new VR mode is going to be putting players directly into the cockpit with a small hologram on the side to give them further details and context to where they're facing and, and what sort of actions the uh, mech suit is performing. Now, Konami has promised more details to come before the game launches sometime next spring. 
So when I first heard this story, I was under the impression that this was a VR conversion of the very first Zone of the Enders, which was an extremely interesting game for the time, but it was also extremely repetitive. Seriously, you just float around Mars and fight other robots over a highway, and um, they keep mentioning how everyone has to stay indoors, that's why you don't really see anything going on outside. It's It gets kind of boring after a while. But Zone of the Enders 2 was a far better experience. There was more natural environments, and the cel-shaded art style really made the game pop at the time. It was a good game, or at least it was a good game at the time. I'm not sure how it holds up, but I will say updating the visuals will go a really long way. That said, we need to dig a little deeper on exactly what this represents for Konami. I mean, come on, this is Konami. What are they doing? <laughs> so here's what we need to talk about. You see, Zone of the Enders was a franchise that became notable back in 2001 when the very first game came out for one reason, and that was that it included a playable demo of Metal Gear Solid 2. Now keep in mind, this is before consoles had downloadable demos, and as such, this caused Zone of the Enders sales to explode. Seriously, people were buying uh, Zone of the Enders just to play a little bit, just a sliver of Metal Gear Solid 2. Now, um, you also have to keep in mind that this is a sales tactic that has continued throughout history. Remember Crackdown? That was sold on the back of the Halo 3 beta test. It's always been a smart business move. I'm not sure how many people were actually attached to Zone of the Enders. I'm not sure how well Zone of the Enders 2 sold, but for a time, it was a bestseller. But Zone also happened to be one of those series that was automatically related to Hideo Kojima. It had the Hideo Kojima stamp. He was a producer on the project, which adds a lot of credibility to any game. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned, he created Metal Gear. Metal Gear was really big. People really loved and respected Kojima. So his name carried a lot of clout, but there's no real evidence on how much he actually had to do with Zone of the Enders. Uh, if you've ever heard about the Lords of Shadow, the Castlevania uh, 3D action game, if you've ever heard about how that was a Kojima-produced production, and then you actually read into it, you find out that he only showed up one day and signed some autographs. It's really depressing. So we don't, I'm not saying he didn't do anything, I'm just saying we don't really know how much involvement he had. So who actually directed Zone of the Enders? Well, it was none other than Shoyu Murata. I think I said that right. Uh, who would obviously go on to work with Kojima in all future Metal Gear Solid projects, doing everything from game design to writing and even directing cutscenes which means he was Kojima's right-hand man, because when you think about Metal Gear, you think about the story, the game design, and the cutscenes. And he did all three. The only other person that did all three, Kojima. But here's where we get into a bit of trouble. See, I tried looking up some information about uh, Murata. Where exactly did he go after the whole fallout with Kojima being removed uh, from Konami? Did he leave Konami as well? Well, if he has, he hasn't been very public about it. And if he joined Kojima's team, I think that would be a bigger news story. So everyone on the internet, at least, is just assuming that Murata is still with Konami, that he might be, in some cases, you know, the stand-in for Kojima, which is kind of crazy. But that begs the most obvious question, who's making these new Konami games in general? We have Metal Gear Survive, which apparently is being made by the same team behind the Phantom Pain, whatever that means, because most of them left with Kojima. And now we have a game directed by Murata that's being remade. So that would lead many to believe that yes, Murata is going to be pushing 
uh, development forward at Konami, which means that they might not be getting out of video games like we originally thought, because it seemed like they were just winding down just trying to recoup some costs, but I'm not sure about that anymore. Uh, in fact, if Murata is still there, and he is leading development on, on some of these projects, because I couldn't find any information on who is directing Metal Gear Survive, I couldn't find any information on who is uh, heading up development on this remake, beyond just Konami. Konami's very, very private about this. But this will lead me to believe, and this is just a guess, this is just a guess for me, that they might be trying to give a few test runs to their development team before moving on to other things. Like, they, they, you see it all the time where maybe a developer will work on a remaster of a project before working on their own game. It allows the team to kind of get used to their dynamic. It allows them to get accustomed to the hardware. It's super common. So, Metal Gear Survive and, and this brand new Zone of the Enders, maybe this is just them warming up and Murata is going to lead them into the future. Just a guess, but it could be true. That is really just a guess though. None of that has been proven. <laughs> Don't, don't, don't be talking to your friend saying, Nope! I was listening to the pressure cast, it's true! Anyway, let's move on. Toot toot. Well, here's something I thought I would never say. Gungrave is back, and considering there hasn't really been a Gungrave game, or at least a main Gungrave game since 2004, I think it's safe to assume you might not know what I'm talking about. So, for those of you not in the know, Gungrave was a third-person shooter made back in 2002, which uh, featured art provided by... Boy, here we go. Yashihoro... Naito. I think I did it. I think I did it. He was the creator of Trigun, really popular uh, anime series and manga as well. Uh, basically, Gungrave was a game where you stood in one place and you shot everyone with a pair of giant pistols and then you fired a rocket out of a coffin. It was an acquired taste, but I thought it was badass. Anyway, uh, this was later turned into an anime series, which I've heard is quite good, but I never actually watched it. And then it ended in 2004, the same year as the sequel, Gungrave Overdose, was released. And that was basically the end of the franchise, except for one mobile game that apparently came out last year that I've never heard of. Well, Blue Side, not to be confused with Blue Hole, Blue Side, they were the developers behind Kingdom Under Fire and 99 Nights alongside uh, mobile developer Iggy Mob, are bringing Gungrave to PlayStation VR later this year, and to the Oculus Rift and HTC Vive at some point in 2018. This version will feature both third-person and first-person perspectives, as the players fire hundreds and hundreds of rounds into giant blimps and robots. Now isn't this kind of funny? Last week in Strong History we were talking about Red Entertainment, who are still tied to the Gungrave series. It's true! Then BAM! This happens! Well, as I've said in the past, simply bringing old ideas into VR isn't a good idea. VR is a new concept, it's a new platform, much like 3D was back in the mid-90s, and it should be treated as such. But hey, I'll admit it, if you had to pick one third-person shooter franchise to drop into VR, Gungrave is the obvious choice. Seriously, you just stood around in one place and turned left and right and shot everything, and that was a game that could have taken advantage of, of two analog sticks and four shoulder buttons and four face buttons and D-pad and a starting to select button. Why am I naming all the buttons? and the PlayStation analog mode button. But the point is, it basically just focused on the square button and turning left and right and just shooting everything. But it it was cool, it was badass, and it was quick hit fun. It was only like a three hour long game, and I probably beat that game at least 12 times, no exaggeration, and I was like downloading the soundtrack off of LimeWire. <laughs> that was really cool back then. So if you've ever wanted a VR game starring an anime zombie version of The Punisher, this might be for you. And I'll be honest, it's got my, uh, it's got my curiosity peaked. Anyway, toot toot. Holy shit, let's get to the biggest 
news story of the Tokyo Game Show. It is a little game called Left Alive. Now, technically, this is a new franchise from Square Enix. I'll explain why it's technically a new franchise later on. Uh, but the reason you should get excited about this is because of who is involved in this project. But before we get to that, I want to give you a little bit of setup because they had a really good trailer. I want to I want to share that setup with you. Let's talk about what the game is. From the footage shown, it's a, at least in the trailer and from the comments made by the developers, it's going to be a science fiction third-person shooter that takes place in a snowy future Russian city. Uh, that basically just looks like today's Russian cities, just covered in snow. So I guess yeah, no, that's 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 still pretty accurate. But <laughs> they have giant mech robots that are used as military weapons. Now the gameplay itself is classified as a survival game, but just from watching the trailer, the on foot combat looks a little bit like SOCOM or Player Unknown Battlegrounds. Um, that's just what it looks like. I'm not saying that's how it's going to play. That's because the details are really slim right now, but that's what it looks like. Here's where things get a bit confusing, though. They're saying it's going to be stage-based, but it will rely on scrounging for resources in some sort of open-world location and crafting to create weapons for your giant mech suit. Now you're going to be on the ground collecting stuff and then bring it back to your mech suit and do all that sort of stuff. Um, and setting up traps along the way and engaging on on-the-ground firefights. It looks really amazing! Also, there's going to be three playable characters and their storylines are going to be changed based off of your actions, but they've also mentioned that there's going to be one canonical ending. They're not... even though all of these people could uh, spin out into different directions. Alright, so good so far, but what's the big deal? Like, yeah, there's lots of neat games that get announced every year. Why is this one special? Well, it turns out this is going to be taking place in the Front Mission universe, which was a series that's been dormant since 2010. Now, this is a prequel to the last game, which was Front Mission... <laughs> not Hot Pocket. Front Mission Evolved. Evolved! Still with me? Good. Well, here's where it gets really good. Uh, Shinji Hashimoto is producing, and he's worked on the Front Mission series since the beginning. Toshifumi Nabashima is directing, and this guy worked on the Armor Core series, and Chrome Hounds, which are two beloved mech franchises. Series. There are people out there that just, they are pining for Chrome Hounds to return, even though it never will. It gets better, though. The art and character design is being handled by Yoji Shinikawa, from Metal Gear. The guy who designed the Metal Gear and Metal Gear Solid, he is going to be working on this to design mechs and characters. And Takayuki Yanasi, whoo boy, I hope I got that right. Yanasi, yes. He also worked on the Metal Gear series and he's also designed, uh, you know, stuff for that, but he also designed mechs for Mobile Suit Gundam and Xenoblade Chronicles X. In other words, if you ever wanted a gritty, futuristic military mech game, this would be the dream team. This would be on some message board being like, I think that they should make this and that and this and that. And <laughs> Silly person on a message board. That will never happen. It's happening. Seriously, go look up the trailer. They're saying it's 50% done right now and it's going to be on the PlayStation 4 and PC in 2018. I really hope it delivers. But I don't, I, I don't feel confident about that release date. 2018? And if you've never played a Front Mission or an Armor Core game, go look it up. And oh, by the way, Armor Core is, um, is from software. The people that made Dark Souls and, and Demon Souls and Bloodborne. So that's the sort of pedigree that's coming in here. Although I would not expect this to be, you know, like Dark Souls or anything. But still, super, super cool. Toot toot. 
That was a really fun story. But here's a story I missed last month, but because they put out a new trailer, I can talk about it right now. Earth Defense Force 5 has been announced for the PlayStation 4 and will release on December 7th in Japan. That's really the whole story right here, but for those of you not in the know, Earth Defense Force is a great series. Basically, you're a soldier running around a big city fighting gigantic bugs. And that's true of this new one as well, but this time, you'll be able to enter a large robot suit. I think I'm noticing a pattern to these stories here. Hmm. And you'll fight a cheap knockoff of Godzilla and destroy a city. It looks amazing. Now, before you run out and buy Earth Defense Force 4.1 on your PlayStation 4, there's a few things you need to know about the series. But by the way, I really did like Earth Defense Force 4.1. It's a really fun game. But you need to know that Earth Defense Force, as a franchise, these games never look good. <laughs> they just don't. I mean, they look good. You see a screenshot and you're like, that's not so bad. Then you see it in motion and, well, let's just say they push whatever platform they're on to the edge. You've got dozens of bus-sized ants running around all at once while you're shooting explosive rockets and skyscrapers are collapsing. In other words, the frame rate absolutely sucks. But for some reason, that's okay. It's all part of the charm. It's kind of like Nicolas Cage. You know he's gonna overact, it's gonna derail the film, but that's fine because he's one of a kind. I hope that made any sort of sense. Let's just move on. Toot toot. Uh, another Tokyo Game Show, another Monster Hunter. That's true. I said that really weird, didn't I? Another, <laughs> another Tokyo Game Show, whatever. But yeah, uh, we haven't really talked about Monster Hunter World since E3 earlier this year, where it was announced at the PlayStation event. Yeah? Yeah, back in June. Okay. That sounds about right. But this is a good opportunity to do that. See, Capcom has just announced the game is going to be launching worldwide on January 26, 2018. We'll talk about why that's a big deal in just a moment. For the, but for those of you unfamiliar with the Monster Hunter series, um, it's uh, it's basically, hmm, it's a little bit like, uh, well, basically, you <laughs> I'm doing a great job already. Monster Hunter, it's a game where you gather supplies, you plant traps, and you strategize to take down hulking beasts. Uh, the closest thing I can compare it to it's kind of, did you ever play Grand Theft Auto V? The, the GTA V heist mixed with Dark Souls. And the reason I say that specifically is because like, you know in the GTA heist where you have a couple of missions where you have to go over and you have to collect all the resources before you can actually um, engage in the heist? You know, you're preparing for it. That's what you do in the first half of every Monster Hunter mission. And then the second half you're fighting the, uh, the monster and you have like big swords and stuff that are kind of slow and then you have to roll out of the way. So it's kind of like Dark Souls. It's not a perfect comparison. But those are two really popular games, so I hope you understand what I'm talking about, especially if you haven't played Monster Hunter. It's a good series. It really is. Anyway, the series has been going on for 13 years, originally debuting on the PlayStation 2 to a mildly positive reception, but when it made the leap to the PSP and then the 3DS, it became a monster hit. <laughs> you like that? Uh, but here in America, it's more of a cult franchise. It's got a small fan base, not a big one, but a loyal one. And a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, being a third-person game on a handheld. It's not really a popular genre here. And sure, Capcom have made attempts in the past, like porting it to the Wii and the Wii U, but the only problem was that the Wii was pretty dead by the time it got Monster Hunter Try, and the Wii U was never really alive, so no one really played it on those consoles, unless you were already into Monster Hunter. So Capcom right now, they are throwing down the gauntlet. They're saying, fine, Western audiences, we're gonna call your bluff. You want two analog sticks? 
Fine. You want modern graphics? Fine. You want an Xbox version? Fine. Yeah, really, it's coming to Xbox. Who would have thought? I mean, there's really no denying their intentions here. This is for Western audiences. They announced a worldwide release date. That never happens. What they always do is they announce some game, it comes out in Japan, and then it takes like forever to be released here. But this time, everyone at the exact same time is going to be playing together, which is crazy. So will it work? Maybe. I mean, will it attract Western audiences? Maybe. You know, Japanese games tend to sell better in the winter, so January's a really good time. Well, January to early spring, because Western games generally release late spring and then starting in fall all the way until the end of the holiday. But will it sell in Japan? I'll say yes, for sure. It's Monster Hunter. Of course it's going to sell in Japan, but I don't think it's going to be anywhere near the level of Double Cross on the Nintendo Switch. Now, if they can bring Monster Hunter World to the Nintendo Switch and make that more of a focus, it could be a bigger hit, obviously, because Japan is just Switch crazy right now. Uh, but going forward, if they were able to just, like, have one singular series where they have the Western audiences and uh, the Japanese audiences, they would bring in a ton of cash. They would drastically lower production costs instead of having these two simultaneous franchises, and they would have a much wider audience. That's just my guess. Now, of course, there's no reason for them to do anything different uh, right now. They can just release Monster Hunter World and the core Monster Hunter franchise because the core Monster Hunter franchise is still hugely popular in Japan. Even after a few um, disappointing debuts and sales over the past couple of years. But whatever. Let's find out. Toot toot. We've got a couple of Final Fantasy announcements to get to. Starting off here with a pleasant surprise that Final Fantasy IX is now available on the PlayStation 4. As in right now, if you want to go download on your PlayStation 4, it's 20 bucks. Have at it. Have fun there. <laughs> now if you ask me... This might be the best 3D Final Fantasy ever. It's not my personal favorite. That would be 7. Because, of course, I said personal favorite, didn't I? But standing back and really looking at each of these Final Fantasy games in terms of story and systems, 9 had the most consistent tone. Even if you had to play that stupid card game to progress at certain points. Bastards. But before you get too excited, this is a straight port of the PC version. This is not a remaster or a remake of any sorts. This is the PlayStation 1 uh, ISO that was brought over to PC and now is being dumped on the PlayStation 4, which basically means you've got pre-rendered backgrounds that are just as compressed as they were back in 2000. Came out in 2000. Yeah, because it was right around the time that the PlayStation 2 was released. And so you've got these compressed backgrounds that were made in the age of the CD, while the character models are drenched in anti-aliasing, so it basically looks like a Photoshop nightmare of a compressed JPEG and PNGs being dropped over them. <laughs> but still, it's one of the best games of all time. You should probably play it. Toot toot. But enough talk about good Final Fantasies. Let's talk about Final Fantasy XV. Okay, that was mean. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Uh, you know, Final Fantasy XV, baffling. That's the one word that comes to mind when I think about Final Fantasy XV. Almost successful. Almost successful. But that's just my opinion. Obviously, it released last fall to positive reviews and positive sales. Uh, I like bits of it, but man, it fell off such a steep cliff. It is insane. The second half of that game is just no bueno. Uh, but Square Enix has announced the game's free multiplayer expansion. is going to be dropping on October 31st. Spooky multiplayer expansion. Uh, squads of four will be able to explore the game's sizable open world, taking on quests and customizing their characters. More DLC is on the way with a fishing minigame for VR headsets. Cool. And a story starring everyone's favorite, Ignis? Okay. In related news, the director Hajime Tabata revealed a series of technical investigations 
his words, not mine, are taking place to see if Final Fantasy XV could come to the Nintendo Switch. So Final Fantasy XV could come to the Nintendo Switch. Though Tabata has cautioned fans that these are only tests and the development has not officially begun and might never begin. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and say that they'll probably launch Final Fantasy XV on the Switch. I don't think it's a good idea, but I think that they will. And if you're thinking, why do you hate the Switch? It's not that, it's just that the Final Fantasy XV, man, it was not properly optimized on the PlayStation 4 or the Xbox One. There were frame rate issues everywhere that you went. And I, I played on the PlayStation 4 Pro when they fixed it, when they patched it, and even then it just, mm, it wasn't, it was, it's, it's still noticeable. No matter where you are, it's still noticeable. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't play the game over a frame rate, but I'm just saying, if that's how it is on the PlayStation 4 Pro, what do you think it's going to be like on the Switch? You know, an Android tablet. That's not a good sign. It never is. Besides, Tabata, you know, said back about a year ago that Final Fantasy 15 would need to sell 10 million copies to be successful. Well, apparently now he said it only needed 6 million copies to be successful, which, funny enough, they only sold 6 million copies so far. So I think that's why they're talking about the Switch right now. That's why it's going to happen is because they want to make up for that 4 million. And the Switch could do that on its own. It really could. It's, it's Right now, we're in that early phase, much like the Wii. You know, I'm not comparing it and saying that the Switch is going to be the new Wii or anything like that, but right now we're in that point where whatever releases on the Switch sells well. Doesn't matter if it's new. It's doing really well right now. Uh, we'll be talking more about Square Enix's plans for games as services when we get to the chart park. But as someone who saw a little bit of potential in Final Fantasy XV, I want to talk more about that multiplayer mode because that isn't a bad idea. I mean, they have all of this, this space and... <laughs> They might as well do something with it. Besides, four-player co-op would make it feel somewhat like Monster Hunter, which, as we just talked about, is really big over in Japan. Just don't be surprised when there's paid DLC for your custom character in the multiplayer mode, because you know, you know it's coming. <laughs> uh, we're all gonna die. Toot toot! <laughs> so, Yakuza Kiwami is a remake of 2005's PlayStation 2 game Yakuza, and that just launched last month here in the United States. But over in Japan, Yakuza Kiwami, that's old hat, man. That's what they say in Japan. They use really old terminology. Um, over in Japan, they're already talking about Yakuza Kiwami 2, which, as you might have guessed, is a remake of Yakuza 2. Now, I just beat Kiwami. It was pretty alright, but the problem with it was that it was just the first Yakuza with a few more side missions. In case you don't know, Yakuza is like a beat-em-up mixed with a JRPG. Just go play it. It's awesome. But, you know, Yakuza Kiwami, not quite as good as Yakuza 0. They tried patching in a few things like a new fighting system that was from Yakuza 0, but it, it, I don't know. It, the, the, the changes felt unnatural. They didn't, they didn't really fit with the reason why I liked the original Yakuza. I just played it on the PlayStation 2 a while ago. Um, but yeah, it felt like it was trapped between old generation and new generation. It felt like purgatory, and that's a reference if you get it. Uh, but Kwame 2 actually looks like a serious improvement as Sega just announced a bunch of brand new things that will only be in Kwame 2, such as a brand new scenario called The Truth Behind Majima Goro. Now, Majima, he's this dude with an eye patch who's insane. <laughs> he's a really fun character, and he's been a playable character in the series in the past, but he wasn't a playable character in Yakuza 2, but now he is. So, they fixed that. Good on him. They've also introduced location-based super attacks. So, when you're playing this game, you'll get into lots of fights in the streets. But let's say you're fighting in front of a ramen shop, and you've made friends with the ramen shop owner. So, while you're fighting the ramen shop owner, he's going to toss you a pipe and hot bowl of ramen, and you know what you're going to do with that? You're gonna take that ramen and throw it right in the face of whoever you're fighting. Naturally. 
It's, seriously, if you haven't played Yakuza, that's normal. Uh, there's also going to be some sort of top-down real-time strategy mode starring real-world pro wrestlers. Go figure. The details are slim on that one. But Yakuza Kwame will be out on December 7th in Japan only. But the good news is that it'll be only out on the PlayStation 4, which means no more PlayStation 3 holdovers. What more can I say? I love me some Yakuza, and I love me some Yakuza 2, and some might even say Yakuza 2 is the best in the series, but even then, if they just brought over a straight remake, I'd be kind of disappointed. That's why I'm excited for this. They got all these crazy new things to round out the package. Uh, I'll have more to say about the Yakuza series in the future, but I will save that for another time. Toot toot! Our next story is about Attack on Titan, which I'll admit I've never actually watched, but I do know it's a popular anime, and it has been for some time, which means hardcore anime fans probably hate it already. But Koi Tecmo has revealed their Musou adaptation, Attack on Titan 2, will launch early next year on the PlayStation 4, Nintendo Switch, PC, and Vita? Alright, I mean, I'm glad they're supporting it still, I'm just surprised. You know? Well, much like the first game, players will use mechanized grappling hooks to cut down hungry giants with their enormous swords. But, in-air mobility has apparently been greatly enhanced compared to the first game, and uh, this will cover all the events of the anime's second season. Now, like I said, I haven't watched the show, but I did play the first game, and I'll admit it, uh, I really enjoyed it for like 90 minutes, and then it got really boring. And I know that uh, that could be said about most Musou games from Konami, no Konami, from Koei, things like Dynasty Warriors and Samurai Warriors, they're repetitive too, but I, I, they're so simple and straightforward that I can really get into them. Whereas the basic controls for Attack on Titan were just too loose and stiff. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but they would wildly fluctuate. Now I'm all for mastering a certain mechanic, but when it's so inconsistent, mm, mm, doesn't work. Now hopefully the sequel will be more in line with what fans want. Do, do American fans actually play this game? I don't know. Maybe. Toot toot. Boy, oh boy, they've really done it now. NIS America has announced plans to publish the 25th Ward in North America next year. Now, considering that this is a, uh, well, I don't really expect anyone to know what the hell the 25th Ward is, so let's play some catch-up. You ever heard of Suda51? He made games like Killer7 and No More Heroes. Perhaps you're more familiar with his free-to-play game that was released last year, Let It Die. Well, his first big standalone visual novel was called The Silver Case. He had a couple of games before that, but his first big hit, at least critically, was The Silver Case. Well, they re-released that game on the PlayStation 4 earlier this year. It was this year, and I think it might have even had a Vita version, but that was in Japan only. I don't know, don't quote me on that. I actually reviewed the Silver Case, and it wasn't very good. Now, the 25th Ward was the follow-up in the series, and it was released in 2005 on fucking smartphones. Seriously? Go back and look at what a smartphone looked like back in 2005, even in Japan. I have no idea how that turned out. Well, now we're going to get the remaster here of the 25th Ward, so we're taking it from smartphones and putting it on your PlayStation 4, and they'll be arriving in the States sometime next year. And I hate to say this, but I'm really excited for this. I know I shouldn't be, but I'm really excited. I even watched the trailer at least 10 times yesterday. I'm not kidding. It was only a minute long. I just kept watching it and watching it because I, I love it. I love the texture of it. I want to know more about it. And even now, even now, right now, I'm thinking back to the amazing time 
I had with the silver case. But there's only one problem. <laughs> I'm lying to myself. See, I did not have a good time with the silver case. There's only maybe three, four good hours in that entire game, but it's a 13-hour long game. And for every cool and creepy moment, there's just hours and hours and hours of filler that establishes and establishes and establishes before being ruled completely false by a stupid plot twist. And once you see that the first time, you know never to fall for the establishing ever again. And then they try and pull the plot twist, and you're like, no, dude. I already know. Like, they seriously do this about six or seven times in the game. But my stupid brain is just editing out all that bullshit and thinking, that was a good game. I really like that game. What is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? You can go watch my review. It's up right now. And, and, and even I'm like, oh, man, maybe more people should play the game. But no, 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 no. Because when you actually sit back and you actually remember what the game was, it wasn't worth it. But you know what? I'm still excited for the 25th board. And I really can't stop watching the trailer. Stupid. All right. Toot toot. I tell ya. In any other year, Resident Evil 7 would be a slam dunk for Game of the Year contender. Or at least in the top 10. But so far, 2017 has been so amazing, Resident Evil's been bumped out of the public consciousness. Of course, it was released in January, so maybe that's why. Now, clearly, Capcom anticipated this because they have announced their free DLC. Lots of free DLC. Isn't that nice? Uh, and the DLC is called Not a Hero. It's going to be launching on December 12th. And good news, if you've played through the game in the past eight months, it will take place after Resident Evil 7. So it's kind of like a, not, not like a sequel, but it takes place after the game. Now, here's where things go a bit sideways. While the original game was a throwback to the survival horror roots of the Resident Evil franchise, this DLC looks to be more action-oriented with serious, serious protagonist Chris Redfield blasting back monsters with military-grade rifles and grenades. Great. But hey, it's free, and it's coming to the Xbox One, PlayStation 4, and PC. Oh, and PlayStation VR. Gotta play it in VR. Some of the people that play that game in VR are a little too... Some of the VR fans kind of creep me out, <laughs> more so than Resident Evil. We're like, oh, if you haven't beaten it in VR, you haven't truly played this game. It's like, well, I did. It's cool. VR is neat, too. It's neat. It's all neat. It was a really, it was a big achievement. Absolutely, but chill out. <laughs> you know, we're, we're going to have cults built around VR. I guarantee it. Give it 20 years. I played Mace Griffin Bounty Hunter. I know how this goes. But anyway, <laughs> I felt really mixed about this initial announcement. After all, the point of Resident Evil 7 was to ranching up the tension and make you paranoid. And even though there was combat in the game, the combat wasn't the focus. And now they've gone and made a superhero game. Seriously, you actually punch the monsters. Ugh. But the more I thought about it, the more I began to appreciate this approach. Now, to be clear, I'm not a fan of Resident Evil 5 or 6. Resident Evil 5 has is not a good game. I don't know why anyone believes it's a good game. <laughs> Resident Evil 6, obviously not a good game. Everyone agrees there. I think the difference is that Resident Evil 5, it just looked really good on their Xbox or the PlayStation. They were deceived by graphics. I don't often pull that card. I don't always say, oh, you're just falling for the graphics, but I really believe that because it was the early parts of the uh, HD generation. Was it really that early in the HD generation? I don't know, but it was when HD televisions became cheaper and so more people were switching from whatever. It doesn't matter. But even the classic Resident Evil games, they had these little rewards once you beat the game. See, back in Resident Evil 1, if you beat the game in under three hours, you could get a rocket launcher with infinite ammo and you know, you could run around and just kill everything with one shot. It was awesome. Now in Resident Evil 2, you could play as a heavily armed dude named Hunk. And you would blow up all the zombies just the same. It was really empowering. Now you could also play as a piece of tofu named Tofu, but that is not the point. He had a knife. 
after uh, being freaked out by slime monsters in Resident Evil 7 for 12 hours, I'm sure it'd be fun to go back and just decimate them with manly punches and machine guns. So you know what? I'm all for it. Good on you, Capcom. That actually makes sense. Well, the way I explained it didn't make any sense when you announced the DLC, but whatever. Let's move on. Toot toot. Well, that's it for the Tokyo Game Show. How about out with the East and back to the West? And it doesn't get much more Western than Red Dead Redemption. <laughs> Anyway, earlier this week, Rockstar Games sent out a tweet that simply stated Thursday, September 28th, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, which can only mean one thing. Red Dead Redemption 2 is being released next Thursday, September 28th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But could you imagine if they're just like, it's live on Steam, PlayStation Network, and, and Xbox Live, and they're like, well, you didn't even announce a PC version. It would blow people's minds. That would be amazing. That would be, that would, that's what a Rockstar would do but whatever. Uh, and that's the whole story right there. What's it actually going to be? Probably another trailer. What else could it be? You know, that's what they do. The Rockstar, they put out screenshots and trailers. The screenshots happen randomly. The trailers, they get announced. I'm not even sure if it'll be Red Dead Online. A lot of people are saying, oh, it's going to be Red Dead Online. They're going to explain how that's going to work. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it could be, but does it really matter? Red Dead Online is going to do fine regardless of when they announce it. But I will predict this. I will give you one solid prediction. Red Dead Redemption 2 is going to be out on April 17th, 2017. That is my guess. No one's confirmed that. That's just my hunch. April 17th, 2017. Put me in the raffle. I want to be in that raffle for when they're going to announce for what the release date's going to be. Uh, but I will have a runner-up just in case. May 15th, 2017. I'm still sticking with that April date, but this is just my second best guess okay let me know if i was right <laughs> toot toot one of 2016's best games is making the leap to mobile platforms play dead announced that uh, the brilliant platformer inside will be ported to the nintendo switch and ios in the near future once again the game is called inside if you didn't catch that but strangely enough this information comes from the japanese video game magazine famitsu Yes, really. Uh, the game's director, Arndt Jensen, apparently told the publication during an extended visit to Japan. And by the way, he's been hanging out with, like, Ueda and Kojima. Like, he's in game design royalty. Just hanging out there. Sharing beers. That's badass. Uh, no release dates have been announced, but this is another great addition to the Switch library. If you're thinking, wow, that sounds pretty good. One of the best games of 2016, you say. I'm gonna go check it out. Please do not. Please do not. Inside is an incredibly short game, somewhere in the range of three hours. Play it for yourself. It's really that good. And now it'll be out on damn near everything, at least everything current gen, so you have no excuse not to play it. Straighten up and fly right, you jerks. Play some inside. Toot toot. So here's the biggest surprise of the week. A group of console modders were digging into the Nintendo Switch internal storage and discovered a strange title, or a strange bit of code, titled Flog. Now, upon booting it up, it was revealed to be none other than the 1984 Famicom title, Golf. I almost said classic, but I didn't want to call it a classic. Uh, yes, it was a it was a copy of Golf, the the NES and Famicom game from 1984. But rather than a straight port, it featured motion controls similar to the golf game in Wii Sports. So, what exactly was this pre doing pre-installed on every Nintendo Switch? Well, we'll get to that in in just a moment, but. 
is this going to be the future of Virtual Console when they when they start giving away those free games when you sign up for their online service? Yeah, yeah. They already announced that they're going to be adding online functionality to stuff like that. Motion controls? Sure, that makes sense. But what was it doing on the Nintendo Switch? That's where things get interesting. Apparently, this game is only accessible when the internal clock of the Nintendo Switch is set to July 11th which is the day the former president of Nintendo, Satoru Iwata, passed away in 2015. Second, the Joy-Cons require a motion input that heavily resembles when Iwata would put his hands together and point directly at the screen. It's a famous gesture he always used to do, and then it would boot up. Now, why was it there? Could it be some sort of peek into the enhanced games? Yeah, we already said it, yeah. But this is more importantly about Iwata their former president. He actually programmed golf because he always had a knack for physics games, which is why he made a lot of pool and golf games in his early career, as well as the NES version of Balloon Flight, just really good with physics. So that's why many are assuming that it's on there. It's an ode to their former president who died before he could see the Switch finally be released. That's pretty fucking cool, bro. If you ask me. Toot toot. And finally, before we get to the games of the week, we have our latest additions to the Xbox One backwards compatibility program. And there's a bit of a theme here. See if you can spot it. They are as follows. Halo Combat Evolved Anniversary Edition. Halo 3. Halo 3 ODST. Halo 4. That's it. Just all the Halo games that are available on the 360 are now available on the Xbox One. Though technically... All Halo games were already available on the Xbox One back in 2014 because of the Master Chief Collection, but... This version is free if you already own the games. Oh, and all the DLC is free now too, just so you know. Also worth mentioning, it's the 10th anniversary of Halo 3, so you know we're gonna be talking about it in strong history. Well, sort of, we're gonna be talking about an aspect of, of Halo 3. You'll see when we get there later in the show. Toot toot. So here are the games that are gonna be coming out this week on Tuesday. Danganronpa V Killing Harmony is going to be on the PlayStation 4 and Vita. Blue Reflection is going to be on the PlayStation 4. FIFA 18 is going to be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, Switch, PC, Xbox 360, PS3, and your mother. Uh, also on Tuesday, Fallout 4 Game of the Year Edition will be on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. Senran Kagura Pebble Beach Splash will be on the PlayStation 4. Uh, Veronic? Veronic? We'll go with that. Veronic Deluxe Edition is going to be on the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. The Girl and the Robot will be on the PlayStation 4. Gundam Versus will be on the PlayStation 4. Yo-Kai Watch 2 Psychic Spirits will be out on the 3DS. And my most anticipated game, Forza Motorsport 7 Ultimate Edition. Do not judge me. I just talked about how much I loved a visual novel, even though I hated it. I kind of like everything. Doesn't matter what the genre is. But, and I think that's it for the week. Boop, boop. That's gonna do it for the hype train. Thank you, hype train. Thank you for all you do. Keep on tooting. Well, we just gotta keep on moving. It's gonna be a long show, so we need to take a step outside. Ooh, I know a place that's always warm with the glow of cold hard cash. That's right, it's time for... The Chart Park, the land where money grows on trees. Yes, the Chart Park. Well, we started off the show talking about Fortnite, and we might as well keep that train going, because earlier this week, a number of users were reporting some irregularities in the game. You see, Fortnite is online only, and as such, you're paired with other users from your console hardware group. PlayStation plays with PlayStation, Xbox plays with Xbox, PlayStation plays with PC, 
that's a different story altogether. But PlayStation users began noticing names with spaces, which of course are not allowed on PlayStation Network, which can only mean one thing, we can finally change our names on PlayStation Network. No, of course not, I'm just kidding. But something far more interesting was happening. Players discovered the Xbox One version of the game was connecting to the PlayStation Network, and the PlayStation Network version of the game was connecting to Xbox Live. In other words, there was crossplay right there, out of the blue. And users quickly took note and went to social media to cross-reference with each other to prove that yes, Xbox Live and PlayStation Network were communicating without any sort of issue. Even a Reddit post, alleged Reddit post, we can't really confirm if this was real, showed um, an Xbox One version and a PlayStation 4 version in the exact same room on separate monitors with the characters standing back to back. Which is pretty pretty amazing if it's true. Sadly, this was never part of the plan though, and the functionality was quickly removed by Epic Games, who told the news outlet GameSpot, quote, we had a configuration issue and has now been corrected. Dang. Now, in case you don't know, everyone from Steam to Xbox Live and even Nintendo have embraced cross-platform play. There's only one holdout at the moment, Sony. Maybe someone else, probably not, uh, maybe a developer, but when it comes to the actual consoles connecting, it's just Sony. In fact, the head of Xbox, Phil Spencer, he responded to the news by stating, quote, I would have liked to see them leave it on, end quote. Never shy about what he thinks. Over the past couple of years, we've heard comments from Synox, the developers of Rocket League, say that they could activate crossplay in a matter of hours. After all, online play isn't some sort of magic. Your hardware is outputting mostly the same data in regards to an individual game, player location and action, and it's receiving that as well. But now we know for a fact that this works. It works really well. So well, in fact, that people that were playing didn't notice it right away. And that put Sony in kind of an odd spot, but one that I'm sure we can all understand from a business standpoint. See, they could just activate this right away, why don't they? Here's the reason. They're leading the console space in a closed market. That's a win for whoever's in first place. Obviously, Sony sold the most consoles, and that's a good thing. Well, what kind of thought process goes into buying a console? How does this influence anything? Well, for many people, it boils down to playing a game where their friends are. If they want to play the brand new Call of Duty with the crew, with their crew, they have a crew they want to play the Call of Duty with, they better get whatever hardware the crew has. But what if you don't have a crew? How are you supposed to play the crew or the crew too with the crew or your soon to be crew? Well, there's only one thing you can do, crewless you, and that's buy the most popular console. That way you know, you know, there's more players on that, on that console, which means that games will be more heavily populated like Call of Duty or the crew. After all, they have more users. It only makes sense. And even in the case where you have both systems, let's say you have a PlayStation 4 and an Xbox One, like I do, I got both. Uh, I usually go with the PlayStation 4 version when it's an online game because it has a bigger fan base. Just makes sense. But times are changing. And right now it looks like Sony is on an island all to themselves, which doesn't matter because they're the leader. Yeah. But what about the future? What if consoles get another go around and Xbox becomes the best selling console again? And laugh all you want, but the console race has always come in waves. One day you're the Wii, the next you're the Wii U, and then you're the Switch. You never know where you're gonna be. You never know how your momentum's gonna work. Regardless of what Sony says now, crossplay is inevitable. 
for the time being, it would be nice to see them embrace it, but I guess they don't have to. Besides, they already have the biggest online killer app, and that is Knack 2 Co-op. Moving on. So, let's get back to regular business for the chart park. The stock market. Who doesn't love the stock market? The highs, the lows, more highs. Well, Nintendo loves the stock market because on Tuesday, their stock hit a nine-year high, which means, uh, what was that, 2008. Wow, so that's when the Wii is really rolling. Their stock actually jumped 7.1% out of nowhere. What caused this? Well, one word. Tencent. Or, I guess, three words. Tencent holding LTD, which technically is two words, an acronym. But the point is, Arena of Valor was announced for the Nintendo Switch last week during their uh, Nintendo Direct. I forgot what they even called those for a second, Nintendo Direct. Uh, but uh, the Arena of Valor is published by Tencent, who also happened to be the world's biggest video game publisher. They pulled in $10 billion alone last year. That's impressive all on its own. But the real story is that there are rumors of a potential Nintendo and Tencent partnership. Now, this isn't in regards to just Tencent bringing games over to the Switch. That's, that's great, but that's not the big story. The rumors are that Tencent and Nintendo are going to team up to bring the Nintendo Switch to China, which so far is a market that consoles haven't really been able to penetrate. In fact, consoles were straight up banned in China until 2015. Really, if you went to uh, China before 2015, you're like, I would like an Xbox, sir. They'd say, nope, not allowed. Dang. Uh, which meant that most Chinese players over the past 30 years, they moved on to smartphones and PCs. So consoles are not that big of a deal for them. Now, despite having no access to consoles, uh, and the majority of the country not really playing games, the Chinese market, just in terms of game revenue, accounted for $24.4 billion last year. $24.4 billion just from games last year, just from China, which makes it the single largest market of a country. Not of a region, just a country. See, the thing is, the total number of players in China, the total number of people that play video games in China is actually higher than the entire population of the United States. Period. They have more people that play video games over in China than we have citizens in America. But let's really think about this for a moment. Why would the Chinese care if a Chinese company vouches for a Japanese company? They're still just gonna play on PC. Just look at what happened to Xbox and PlayStation when they launched in mainland China. Sure, they sold uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, PlayStation 4s and Xbox Ones. Well, it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, there's a few different angles you need to understand on why this could be a big deal. First, like I said, consoles were illegal for a long time in China, which adds a certain stigma to the whole thing. Just because your government suddenly says, okay, you can have consoles now, doesn't mean you're going to jump right on board especially when your government is the People's Republic of China, they're kind of a stickler for rules. You gotta be kind of careful, you know? So, when a brand that's recognized by the Chinese uh, population, not to mention one of the biggest companies in China, like Tencent, puts their stamp of approval on a piece of hardware, it becomes more palatable. It's more legit suddenly, you know? It's like, okay, I guess, I guess we can have consoles after all. Why not? <laughs> Second, I mean, I guess it would be the, the equivalent of uh, an alcohol company or a cigarette company uh, selling marijuana. Like, suddenly you'd be like, oh, okay, this is a little more recognizable as opposed to some weird shop where they're selling lollipops. 
That was a weird comparison. I don't know. Second, though, we need to look at what was being smuggled into China prior to the ban. See, even though they couldn't have consoles, they still had consoles. You can't stop everything, you know? And from what I've read on blogs and what I've been told by friends who went to China, the PlayStation Vita was actually kind of popular over there, at least in uh, large uh, city areas. And it kind of makes sense. See, there's loads of Android-based handheld bootlegs uh, sold over in China. They're these little crappy systems. I bought a few and then I returned them because they're awful. You've, you've probably seen these. They, they always make jokes about them on the internet. Like, what's this random thing? And then it turns out it has 250 NES games pre-installed, right? All right. But the Vita was a rock-solid platform in terms of usability and had an underground following that, once again, never quite lived up to actual sales once it made the legal jump. That said, it's obvious why handhelds would be attractive in China. There's something uh, the PC can't offer. And even in the case of the smartphone, they can't offer it either. It's just that perfect right in the middle. Now, let's roll back for just a moment to see why Nintendo would have the best chance in the market itself. Why their games would actually appeal to the Chinese market. I'll tell you why. They're family friendly. Most importantly, they don't go out of their way to offend anybody, which is good because the Chinese market of culture has very strict rules in regards to content. They don't like drugs, they don't like gambling, they do not like slander, and anything that promotes religion or cults is straight up banned. So if you have that in your game, it's not getting into China. Now, some of you may have heard that skeletons are illegal in China. You can't have a skeleton in a game. That's just a myth. That is not true. Developers are just being careful and they're removing it just, you know, just in case, you know, because superstitious material is illegal in China. So anyway, you take all of that into account. Nintendo has a bunch of family-friendly games like Animal Crossing. They could totally release Animal Crossing over in China or uh, Splatoon. Totally really Splatoon. There's nothing superstitious to Squidge to Nink. Well, Mario Kart, all these games. You have a giant library of, of great games that are being approved by a major partner partner in the territory in the form of Tencent and an untapped market for high-end cost-effective handhelds. And you can see exactly why investors are so excited over this news. For Nintendo's sake, let's hope it's true. We never get to cover Chinese stuff here. That was cool. That was fun. Anyway, moving on. So how many times... Have you heard of this happening? You've got a developer or musician who uh, does something that their audience doesn't like. And instead of just abandoning said artist, they go out of their way to review bomb them in their products with negative comments. You see this all the time in Metacritic and, well, in the case of our story, Steam. And it's certainly been happening to Campo Sampo, the directors of the game Firewatch, after they issued a DMCA takedown on PewDiePie. So much so, in fact, that Valve has actually stepped in to once again change their Steam review system. Oh, what's that? What'd you say? What do reviewers have to do now to get their reviews approved? Oh, nothing. No, no, no. Don't be silly. The onus is never on the aggressors themselves. They can continue to review, bomb, whatever they like, completely unchecked. No, no, no. Valve has taken meaningful action in the form of a bar graph. Oh yes, really. Now you can see when the reviews go up on the bar and when they go down on the bar and based off of which date. Yeah, they, they fixed everybody. 
In his statement, Valve explained the advantages of this new model, stating, quote, Starting today, each game page now contains a, a histogram, sorry, that's fancy, a histogram of the positive to negative ratio of reviews over the entire lifetime of the game. And by clicking on any part of the histogram, you're able to sample uh, from those reviews of that time period. As a potential purchaser, it's easy to spot temporary distortions in the reviews to investigate why that distortion occurred and decide for yourself whether it's something you care about. <laughs> this approach has the advantage of neither preventing anyone from submitting a review, very important, uh, but does require slightly more effort on the part of the particular, uh, potential purchasers, end quote. Hey, Valve, you gotta, I gotta hand it to you. That's pretty smart. After all, uh, I, I see some negative reviews, I click on it, I see a bunch of gibberish I don't understand because if you've ever read those negative reviews, they're just insane. So I Google it, and then I find a bunch of more gibberish and conflicting information. Thanks, Valve! I can just look it up and see that Firewatch is a bad game because of PewDiePie. And a YouTube. Oh, and PewDiePie used an ethnic slur. Firewatch? Naughty naughty. That's really gonna help out the average consumer. Way to go, Valve. Oh yeah, that would require a little bit more effort on the average consumer's part. That makes sense. Good job. A plus. Why not? That's good. Don't even bother. Great. Let's move on. Let's go back to Microsoft. We have some more news that's kind of linked to Xbox. The head of the Xbox brand and VP of gaming for Microsoft, which by the way, I don't believe they actually have a head of gaming at Microsoft, just a VP, but Phil Spencer has been added to the advisory board of Xbox, the advisory board of Microsoft, alongside chief influencers such as the CFO, uh, Terry Meyerson, and the CEO of uh, Microsoft, Satili Nadala. Now, altogether, this group consists of 16 members who help conceive of and push the direction of Microsoft as a whole. And for Phil Spencer, joining is a serious career accomplishment. Now, some might say he's undeserving because the Xbox is losing the PlayStation. That's nonsense and beyond petty, really. Even in second place, the brand overall has grown significantly since 2014. Now, Phil Spencer, obviously he's a smart and enthusiastic guy, but I think this has more to do with this straightforward style. If he's thinking something, he says it, and he's always thinking something. And if, even if he can't say the thing that he's thinking, he'll say that he wants to say it, but that he can't say the thing that he wants to say. Makes sense. So yeah, sounds like a great addition for Microsoft and a major boost for the Xbox brand, because you now have the person that's heading up Xbox helping to guide the ship. And if you're like, wasn't he always in that position? No, that's why this is a news story. Anyway, moving on. Here's a story that had many message board freakouts. Over the past week, use, um, sorry, Yusuke Matsuda, the president of Square Enix, released a policy message to outline the future plans of the publisher. Uh, nothing uncommon here, that happens all the time. But it was two particular sentences that caused quite a stir online. Here's what Matsuda said, quote, Gone are the days in which single-player games were a primary status and multiplayer games secondary. Lately, multiplayer games have taken the lead and it is the standard for games to be designed for long-term play." End quote. This of course coincides with the soon-to-be-released multiplayer update to Final Fantasy XV. You know what, everybody? I understand where you're coming from. He's talking smack about single-player games. He's just talking about always online. Is that what he's talking about? Well, I think I need to drop some truth bombs on Masuda. Matsuda. I'm dropping some truth bombs. Hey, Maddie, you think you're so smart, huh? Well, let me tell you what brought Square Enix to the dance. Single player games. That's right. I'm on the side of the consumer. <laughs> and, and now just because you have two popular MMOs, which have sustained healthy growth 
growth over the past few years, creating a viable model that could be mimicked alongside smaller projects, including single-player games. It, mm. Wait a minute. Oh, wait. Oh, he's right. He's right! Come on, guys! You don't really think Square Enix is going to completely abandon single-player games altogether. Because they won't. Just look at Dragon Quest XI. We cover the Japanese charts every single week on the pressure cast. And Dragon Quest XI is bringing in bank. But he also clearly understands where the money is coming from in the current age. He looks at things like Grand Theft Auto Online. Grand Theft Auto Online just helped Grand Theft Auto V sell 80 million copies. That's impressive. He looks at something like For Honor and Ghost Recon Wildlands, which are the two best-selling games of the year. Or two of the best-selling games of the year. At least in the top five at this point. And this is just Square Enix responding to the concerns of their investors. I'm sure some of their investors are like, why don't we have one of those? And he's saying, oh, we will. We, we, we absolutely. You know, multiplayer isn't secondary anymore. Newsflash. And if you're thinking, well, if it's so obvious, why did he say it? Because he's talking to investors. He's not talking to somebody that, that listens to video game podcasts. <laughs> you know what I mean? This should be obvious. He's talking to the people that are there to make money. And he's explained to them that they will make money. And that he's also explaining that he understands their concerns. What do you expect? Anyway, moving on. Now, before we get to the charts. Yes, I know the chart park is a bit light this week because I took the biggest story of the chart park and put it up front on the show. But before we get to the charts, it's worth mentioning that Nintendo has launched a two-factor authorization for all Nintendo online accounts. In other words, if they don't think it's you trying to access your account, they'll send you a request for a code that you have. And then you can give them that code and they can verify that's actually you. If Whatever. Seriously. If you have a credit card or really anything connected to your account, do this now. It takes five minutes. It could save you so many headaches in the future. Plus, using Google Authenticator makes you feel like you're in Mission Impossible. It's really badass. Two-factor authorization is also available on PlayStation Network, Xbox Live, Steam. It's available everywhere. Absolutely do it. Do it right now. I'll wait. All right, let's get over to the uh, charts to find out what are the 10 best-selling games over in the UK. Starting off with number 10, Forza Horizon 3. Number 9 was Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy. Number 8 was Metroid Samus Returns. Number 7 was Grand Theft Auto V. Number 6 was Dishonored. Deaths to the Outsider, Death of the Outsider, which is the spinoff of Dishonored. Number five is Uncharted The Lost Legacy, which is the spinoff of Uncharted. Uh, number four is Fallout 4. Number three is Pro Evolution Soccer 2018. That's why Konami keeps making those. Number two is NBA 2K18. And number one, come on, you already know what it's going to be. It's Destiny 2. Now let's go over to Japan to find one of the 10 best-selling games over there. Start off with number 10, Monster Hunter Double Cross, Nintendo Switch version. I have a feeling they like Monster Hunter. Number 9 was Dragon Quest XI Echoes of the Elusive Age on the 3DS. Number 8 was Mario Kart 8 Deluxe on the Nintendo Switch. Number 7 was Pro Evolution Soccer 2018 on the PlayStation 3? Jeez, alright. Number 6 was Everybody's Golf 5 on the PlayStation 4. Uh, num nope, no, number 6 was Everybody's Golf on the PlayStation 4. Number 5 was Destiny 2 on the PlayStation 4. Number 4 was Uncharted The Lost Legacy on the PlayStation 4. Number 3 was Metroid Samus Returns on the 3DS, which is actually kind of impressive because historically, Metroid hasn't done very well in Japan. You know, keep track of that. See how long it stays in the top 10. Uh, number 2 was Splatoon 2, and number 1 was Pro Evolution Soccer 2018, which is why Konami keeps on making them. 
But what are the best-selling consoles over in Japan? Well, I'm glad you asked because I have the list right here for the week. Uh, starting off with the Nintendo Switch with 44,052, PlayStation 4 with 19,322, New 3DS LL with 10,650, New 2DS LL with 8,761, PlayStation 4 Pro with 5,338, PlayStation Vita with 3,847, 2DS with 1,726, New 3DS, nope, 2DS, we gotta go back up, 2DS with 1,726, New 3DS with 428. Really, just 428 for a new 2DS. PlayStation 3 with 99. The Wii U with 86. And in last week, for the ninth week in a row, it's the Xbox One. Pro Evolution Soccer is available on that. Why don't you buy that, Japan? Nah. But that's going to have to do it for the chart park. The land where money grows on trees. We have now come to the final segment of the show. This is the part of the show we take a look back 10 years ago and beyond to find if there's anything worth talking about, and we usually do. It's a little something we like to call Strong History. 10 years ago, on the Xbox 360, Halo 3. Well, I suppose this week's backwards compatibility sort of spoiled this, but real talk, I didn't really like Halo 3. <laughs> I'm just being honest. I remember playing it and just feeling that the environments were far, far, far too open. That's not to say there haven't been open environments in the past, but being attacked from every single angle was incredibly annoying. And it took me a while to realize where Halo 3's level design had gone wrong. You see, this was the first Halo campaign that allowed four-player co-op. And as I'm sure you're well aware, more players means more factors in stage layout. So frankly, the worst way to play the single-player campaign is as a single player. Pretty backwards if you ask me. But... I still love some parts of Halo 3. Well, not the game itself. Like I said, I didn't really like that. But I absolutely adore the marketing campaign. That might sound petty, but hear me out. I'm sure you remember this. Microsoft spent over $40 million alone on a marketing blitz, and it shows. The incredible television campaign took an unconventional approach and actually had the, uh, the ads take place decades after the game ends. It was a sort of fake documentary style commemorating the Battle of Earth, starring senior actors, people in their 70s or 80s, discussing their personal experiences in the war and their admiration of the legendary Master Chief. It was incredibly evocative. No wonder sales hit $170 million in just 24 hours. Or as they like to say back in 2007, it made more money than the box office this weekend. <laughs> that was a big deal back then. Video games, they make more money than everything. Anyway, 10 years ago, also, Jackass the game on the PlayStation 2. Now, let's face facts. This was never going to be a great game. Heck, it was a cheap cash-in for a TV show that ended five years ago at that time. So it was like 2002. It wasn't even a movie tie-in unless you count Jackass 2.5 coming out to uh, uh, DVD that week. Not even that week, that fall. That said, you've got to give the developers over at Seed Entertainment some credit as the end product strongly resembled the series it was based off of, and it was also a minigame collection, which was pretty original before everybody started doing a bunch of minigame collections. See, the player took on the role of the director and was tasked with watching the Jackass crew perform stunts like falling off of hills and crashing into cacti, wakeboarding on a trash can lid that was being pulled by a pickup truck, and dancing in their underwear at an electronics store. Was it stupid? Yeah, it's... Jackass the game, but that's exactly what fans had come to expect and all things considered the game serves as a sort of time capsule for popular culture 
So what happened to Seed Entertainment? No, Seed Interactive, the developers of the game. Well, I couldn't tell you because the company hasn't formally closed. Or at least I can't find any sort of press release or information on if they filed for bankruptcy or anything. But they also have yet to release a game for this current generation of hardware. With their last game being 2013's Rugby Challenge 2. Even the front page of their website is advertising the 2010 car combat game Blood Drive. That was seven years ago. So things are not looking up. 12 years ago on the Xbox and PlayStation 2, The Suffering Ties That Bind was released. Now, if you ask me, there is no game franchise more deserving of a reboot than The Suffering. It was an early 2000s action horror series that took some seriously uncomfortable subject matter and dropped it right into their game. You played as Torque, which right away tells you this is an early 2000s game. Torque has been sentenced to death for the murder of his wife and children, even though he claims to have no memory of the incident. But before he can be executed, a bunch of weird monsters take over the prison, and now Torque must wander through the darkened cellars to discover survivors while combating the physical embodiments of capital punishment. I'm talking about victims of lethal injection, hanging, and the electric chair, who have now merged with the cause of their death, and they're using that as weapons. It is fucking creepy. Now, truth be told, the, the premise is a lot more interesting than the game itself, especially this sequel, which actually didn't take place much in the prison. It was in a different prison, I think, and also had more action. Uh, but that's why it was, uh, you know, kind of memorable, I guess. But if given to the right developer, I think this idea would be amazing. If they, uh, you know, maybe took, <laughs> if they got the team from Spec Ops The Line back together, because they all separated, and gave them a crack at this, I think it would be the most amazing game out there. Seriously, just go watch some trailers. It's it's dated for sure, but it's still memorable. But what happened to the, the original developer of the game, Surreal Software? Well, to put it bluntly, Nothing good happened. They ended up working on the infamous This Is Vegas, which was an open world game in Vegas, which was canceled when Midway Games filed for bankruptcy. Surreal ended up being sold off to WB Interactive uh, before being closed in 2010, which is sad. So I guess WB has the rights, so you know who to tweet at. 14 years ago, on Windows, Halo Combat Evolved was released. Now. It's fairly common nowadays for PC users to bitch and moan about the PC port taking forever to be released on PC, you know, after the original launch on console at least. Heck, people are already bitching and moaning about the fact that they have to wait two months for Destiny 2, but back in the day, the wait was much, much longer. It took about, I don't know, two years for Halo to finally come out on PC, and this was a game that was owned by Microsoft. But in some ways, this version is the ultimate version of Halo. Unlike the Xbox, the PC version allowed for 16 players competitive. It was awesome. Back on the Xbox, you had to do all sorts of weird tricks to get 16 players together over the internet. One of them was called Connect. Not that Connect. Whatever, it's a different story. And the PC version even had an original stage and the flamethrower flame weapon. Now, two months later, this version would finally come to Macintosh computers, which is kind of ironic because, of course, this was originally supposed to be a Mac game before they were bought out by... before Bungie was bought out by Microsoft. 16 years ago, on the PlayStation 2, Eco was released. Now, boy, oh boy, do I remember being excited for Eco. You see, back in the day, I had a subscription to this magazine called PlayStation Underground. Well, it was a sort of super fan magazine, but it wasn't on paper. Everything came on CDs. Every, I don't know, 
three months, you'd get two CDs in the mail, one for news and videos, and the other one was for demos. If that sounds crazy expensive, well, that's one of the reasons they only release four times a year. Now, not to be confused with the official PlayStation magazine, it was only available through mail order, which meant only the most hardcore of hardcore fans actually got a subscription. So the team behind PlayStation Underground, they understood this and naturally assumed the audience would be well aware of their big hits like Spyro, Twisted Metal, and Siphon Filter. So instead, they would push the lesser-known titles, which is how I originally found out about Eco. Unlike other games of the time, which generally fell into the category of cute or gritty, Eco was far more ambitious, embracing a story and world design that centered around a boy and a girl who would hold hands together and attempt to escape a castle while being chased after by shadowy figures. Now, this might seem odd for a first-party Sony title, especially when it was released, until you consider that this was originally developed for the PlayStation 1, a console that freely embraced new and strange concepts. But by the time it was released on the PlayStation 2, it truly felt like something spectacular, and yet, it still sold like shit here in the United States. Why? Well, mainly because of the cover of the box. Keep in mind, the internet was popular, but most people used to just, you know, look at images and, and read simple text on the internet. They didn't download high quality videos just yet. This is 2001, give it like two or three years, then people start downloading videos. <laughs> so all they could really rely on was pictures and the cover of a box. And even in the rare cases where, uh, you know, no one ever heard of a game, uh, they would be able to at least, I don't know, find out about PlayStation Magazine somewhere, anywhere else. But Eco was sent out just with its box. So what was the cover? What was so bad about it? Well, over in Japan, it was an abstract painting of a boy and a girl that were running past a windmill. It was striking, visually, and that piqued curiosity, made you want to pick it up and go, what's this? Well, over here in America, it was a picture of a boy wearing a stupid horn helmet and aggressively holding a stick that just happened to be right around his groin. Go look it up. Despite poor sales, Sony would go on to produce two more games with director Fumito Iwata, the far more successful Shadow of the Colossus, because they knew what they were doing with the cover, uh, even though the Japanese cover is still better. Uh, and we'll be getting to a remake of that later next year on the PlayStation 4. And then, of course, there was the less than stellar The Last Guardian, which finally released after nearly a decade of development. Also, that same week, on the Dreamcast, Fantasy Star Online version 2 was released. Now, obviously, I could go on and on and on about Fantasy Star Online, but we're supposed to be talking about version 2. So we will, but honestly, there's not that much to talk about here beyond a couple of new missions and the player versus player mode. Oh, and a monthly subscription. You see, the original game was, beyond the initial purchase, completely free. Users could play as much as they wanted to without any sort of issue from Sega. Other players, however, would cause issues. <laughs> see, uh, this was uh, an early console online game that is sort of like um, Diablo in some ways. And Sega never considered the possibility of hackers using commercial software like GameShark to completely rip open the game. If that sounds a little dramatic, you have no idea. Users would erase each other's characters permanently and replace them with a weak NPC. I'm not making that up. They could actually do that with a game shark. Others would create a, a new weapon and add certain attributes to it to kill other players instantly over and over and over again. Just add it to have like 200 hits so that even when they respawn they would die again. And supposedly in some cases it was possible to activate a user's Dreamcast to read data at an accelerated rate which could increase the rate of hardware failure. 
And so Sega put a stop to that, and they released version 2, but man, if you stuck around with version 1, things got really weird in a good way. <laughs> Alright, that same week on the PlayStation 2, Silent Hill 2. Here's a question that doesn't get asked enough. Is Silent Hill 2 the greatest game of all time? Now, you probably already have an answer ready, but that's not the point. See, most of the greatest games of all time are at least given consideration. Whereas Silent Hill 2, despite nearly universal acclaim, never comes up anymore. And I think a lot of that has to do with how successful it was in creating a sense of dread. It brings up horrible, uncomfortable things, and in most cases, in most cases, unwelcomed feelings. I recall explaining what the game was, what it evoked, and, and what it brings out of its players, and I remember uh, a friend of mine actually said, are you okay? Like, he was freaked out when I was describing this stuff. <laughs> I was just discussing the themes of the game, and they came off as unhealthy. That's what Silent Hill 2 does. So what exactly is Silent Hill 2? Well, it's a lot of things, but the basic storyline focuses on James, who one day receives a letter from his wife asking him to return to Silent Hill. Only one problem, she's been dead for a year. Not exactly the most original premise, but it's the way the game communicates these feelings of regret, hopelessness that makes it so effective. In fact, one of the most overlooked elements of the game is the sense of relief when you encounter another human being. Now, these characters, these, these human being characters would be downright creepy in any other scenario. But in Silent Hill 2, just knowing you're not alone, it alleviates stress. Now we could go on to talk about the creation of Pyramid Head or how the series fell from grace later on, but in the grand scheme of things, that's not really important. Silent Hill 2 is a masterpiece that stands on its own. And if I've piqued your interest and you've never played it, I highly recommend you go out and track down a copy on the PlayStation 2. No other version is as good as the PlayStation 2 version. It is a fact. You can actually watch an episode of Digital Foundry Retro to find out why. Just look up DF Retro Silent Hill 2 on Google. I don't know where else you'd look it up, but whatever. Uh, but yes, you can either use the original hardware or you can use an emulator. But trust me, PlayStation 2 version is the way to go. Also that same week, Alone in the Dark, The New Nightmare was released on the Dreamcast. We now go from one of the best horror games of all time to... This. Which isn't a bad game by any means, but... Man, it probably is a bad game now. It probably does not hold up. But at the time, it was average at best. And it really didn't help that this horror game launched alongside the revolutionary Silent Hill 2. But, funny enough, the exact same thing would happen to the developer of New Nightmare, Darkworks, four years later. Four years later. So they had a, they had a bad run of luck where they released a horror game right alongside Silent Hill 2. Well, they're not going to fall for that again. <laughs> four years later, they launched a new take on survival horror called Cold Fear which would incorporate an over-the-shoulder perspective for shooting. Only problem was its development went long, and it launched two months after Resident Evil 4! <laughs> so they got their thunder stolen again! And their final completed project was 2012's I Am Alive, which was actually taken away from them after five years of development and finished by Ubisoft Shanghai. Darkworks wouldn't live to see that as they closed in 2011. They had their thunder stolen, and then they had their game taken away from them. I feel so bad for that development. Come on. That's mean. That's mean. 18 years ago, on the PC, Age of Empires 2, The Age of Kings was released. I'm going to be honest here, I've never really played any of the Age of Empires games, but I knew people who did, so that counts for something. Also that same week, 
Grand Theft Auto 2 was released on the police on the plea on the PC. Now it's always weird for me to talk about Grand Theft Auto, considering I've been a huge fan of the franchise all the way back since the beginning. I actually remember telling my friends that Grand Theft Auto 3 was going to change the world, it was going to be the biggest game of all time, and they laughed at me. Little did I know, the series really would go on to be the biggest thing in the world. But back in the day, Grand Theft Auto was small, and every GTA fan knew it was something very special. But in case you don't know, the original Grand Theft Auto and Grand Theft Auto 2 were 2D games, not 3D games. And they were on the PlayStation, which was mostly 3D games. Isn't that weird? And it was from a top-down perspective. And so many players ignored it just to play more 3D games. Now, despite this, the first game did sell really well, uh, thanks in large part to uh, just the general public outcry from it and government officials denouncing it and countries banning it. It was free advertising. This was quickly followed up by two spin-off expansions, London 1969 and London 1961. Yes, there are Grand Theft Auto that take place in London. They are top-down games. Uh, before finally launching a full-fledged sequel in September of 1999. However, it wouldn't be as warmly embraced as the original games. See, unlike the first, you know, Grand Theft Auto, which um, parodied the real world, or at least it felt it was of the real world, Grand Theft Auto 2 took place in a, a strange futuristic vision of America, and instead of just causing chaos for the mob, you were working for three different warring organizations, so if you did too many jobs for one mob, another mob would come after you and you'd have to work for them. It was insanely complex, and it turned off a lot of fans. Still, this did contain some series firsts, such as radio stations with comedic DJ personalities, uh, my personal favorite was the Russian station, as well as the option to change the time of day to alter the game's lighting, which of course would go on to be the 24-hour uh, day-night cycle in Grand Theft Auto 3. While some saw GTA 2 as jumping the shark, others were more enthusiastic, specifically take Two Interactive, who purchased the developers from Infograms Entertainment for $11 million. DMA Design would then go on to develop Grand Theft Auto 3D, which of course was later renamed to Grand Theft Auto 3. Can you imagine if they called it Grand Theft Auto 3D? Not a good name. And uh, as for DMA, they would go on to change their name and eventually become known as Rockstar North. And you know what? They're doing all right. <laughs> 19 years ago, Back in 1998, on the PC, Fallout 2 was released. Now, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about early Fallout games, but it's worth pointing out, this is another franchise that didn't hit it big until they went 3D. Just like Grand Theft Auto. Think about that. Also, that exact same week, Pokemon Red and Blue was released in America. It's been 19 years, and people still will not shut up about Pokemon. And while I personally haven't been invested in the franchise for some time, I still harbor a lot of fondness for the original 151 Pokemon. But when it was originally conceived by uh, Shitoshi Tajiri, Nintendo wasn't all that jazzed. Sure, it was a cool idea tracking down hundreds of monsters in a giant open world to trade and battle with friends, but could that really be done on the Game Boy? The Game Boy was kind of old. Uh, after all, this game was expected to launch in 1996. That would be seven years after the Game Boy launched. Surely Nintendo would have their new handheld out by then, their next-gen handheld, maybe a Game Boy Advance of some sort, but Shigeru Miyamoto really liked the idea, he liked the pitch, and he essentially gave the concept a green light. And boy oh boy, that was a good thing. That was really smart timing, because the Nintendo 64 wasn't selling all that well in the late 90s, just saying. 
We'll talk about that later. Not only was the game a smash hit in Japan, but its sales continued for months and months on end due to the dual format. Red and blue certainly encouraged people to trade monsters with their friends, but it also meant that they would buy both versions or encourage a friend to pick up a copy because each version had its own unique monsters. Um, the success was so overwhelming, selling over 10 million copies in Japan alone, that Nintendo began developing an American localization. Now keep in mind, this is 1996, and RPGs still are not popular in the United States. Heck, Final Fantasy VII wouldn't be up for another year. And even when it did, people would return the game after discovering it was a... reading game. Yes, really. And so, Nintendo spent over $40 million on marketing in the West, and for those of you keeping track, yes, that's as much as Microsoft would spend on Halo 3 a decade later. But their efforts paid off, and Pokemon became a phenomenon all over the world, totaling over 19.5 million copies worldwide just of Red and Blue. That alone is impressive, but also consider what it did to video games as a whole, as well as pop culture with, with animes and, and merchandising and all that kind of stuff. But... For starters, just focusing back on video games, Pokemon forced Nintendo to continue production of the Game Boy, well past their original timeline. The Game Boy Advance wouldn't even launch until 2001 just because of Pokemon. Because you have to consider that it was a really cheap and efficient uh, hardware to produce. So why wouldn't they keep producing it? Also keep in mind that this blew the lid off of Japanese role-playing games and suddenly the idea of progression systems would slowly creep into more mainstream titles as well as collecting uh, creatures. It's actually become kind of normal. It's no longer just limited to Pokemon. And of course, Pokemon invade all of our televisions and t-shirts and backpacks and beach towels or whatever. Pastors even spoke out against it. <laughs> there, there were people, there were pastors at church saying, no more of those Pokemon. There were opinion pieces in the paper about Pokemon. There were segments on national and local news all about Pokemon. And now, even 19 years later, it's still the cornerstone of pop culture with Pokemon Go. That's some lasting power right there. Also 19 years ago this week, uh, Metal Gear Solid was released on the PlayStation in America. I think we covered this a couple of weeks ago, but just in case, Metal Gear Solid completely changed the face of video game production. Seriously, go back and listen to the voice acting before Metal Gear Solid, and then listen to Metal Gear Solid. You'll appreciate it. Go back and actually watch the way the cutscenes were edited back in the day before Metal Gear. They were very static shots. Metal Gear introduced swooping camera angles, even for something just like a conversation. We take all of that for granted right now. And uh, just read a synopsis of the Metal Gear Solid story. Check out its themes on politics and warfare, and then compare that to any other game at the time. I'm not saying it was the only game attempting this, but it was the most successful. Just saying. 20 years ago on the PlayStation, Mega Man X4 was released. Now, for some odd reason, this one makes me feel really old. Probably because it's a game most people don't talk about, so it's just a personal favorite of mine that just hit two decades. Jesus Christ. Uh, there's not much here to really talk about from a historic perspective. It had a bunch of anime cutscenes, but so did Mega Man X3 on the Saturn. It allowed you to play Zero, but so did other X games, so there's not much to say here, but I liked it back then. That has to count for something. Also that same week, Age of Empires was released, and so was Fallout. Hey, there's two games that I can't really talk about. They're back again. Also that same week on Windows, Postal was released. Now it might sound funny to say today, but back in the day, Postal was scary as hell. Wipe away all the knowledge you have of the bad taste sequels, which are just goofing off, because the original, 
was downright nihilistic. Players took control of a man who was going through a psychopathic episode under the delusion that the government was trying to kill him with secret gas. In retaliation, he goes on a shooting spree, killing dozens of civilians and police uh, along the way. It was so horrifying at the time that the game was immediately banned in over 10 countries. Now, if you go back and look at it, you'll probably laugh because it looks cartoonish, even though it's still kind of creepy. Clearly, the developers running with scissors took note of the response and instead geared the franchise to a more comedic style. But that doesn't mean that they forgot about the original game, as they just re-released Postal Redux last year. Has enhanced controls and stuff. 21 years ago, this is the big one. 21 years ago, in North America, Super Mario 64 and the Nintendo 64 were released, and oh boy, here we are. So remember earlier when I said Pokemon was a good thing, because it brought in so much money for Nintendo, and they expended the lifetime of a cheap-to-produce hardware and sold lots of that? Well, this is why. This right here is why. If you grew up with a Nintendo 64 and you think it's the greatest console ever, I'm happy for you. Seriously, hold tight to those memories. That's beautiful, and that's really all that matters. How you personally felt about your with your, about the Nintendo 64 and your time with the Nintendo 64. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. To you. <laughs> but let's take a step back from those rose-tinted glasses and take a look at what actually happened. So way back in the early 1990s, Silicon Graphics, a hardware and software company, approached Sega with a proposition. Their in-development CPU would be able to produce high-quality 3D visuals and would be perfect for the upcoming generation of consoles, the 3D generation of consoles. Sega of America saw the potential in the hardware, at least I believe Tom Kalansky, I think he took the meeting, I don't know, that's not right. I can't remember who was in charge of Sega at that time. Maybe it was Tom Kalansky, I don't know. So. They actually began working alongside SGI, uh, Silicon Graphics, to develop what would later be known as the Sega Saturn, or at least that was the spot of the Sega Saturn. However, the Japanese leadership was far less enthused, noting several issues with the CPU. Despite, despite requiring less power and being significantly cheaper to produce, the top brass at Sega ended the partnership with Silicon Graphics. Now, without a contract, Silicon Graphics immediately jumped ship to Sega's rival, the second biggest video game company, Nintendo. And really think about this for a moment. Their CPU, their CPU was low power and cost efficient, which was just the standard of Nintendo. It's still the standard of Nintendo. And so the deal was, and when I say low power, I don't mean like, oh, it's a weak CPU. I mean, it didn't require that much power. It, your electric bill was not going to go up. And so, uh, the deal was inked in the summer of 1993, and Project Reality, a, 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 a endeavor that is a partnership in a way between uh, Silicon Graphics and Nintendo, was born. We could go through all the ins and outs of the hardware for the Nintendo 64, but I really just wanted to focus on that because we have a lot to get to. But to be clear, this was a very capable uh, CPU for 3D games. It was very, very capable. If you put it in the right scenario, it would really impress you. So, in mid-1994, Nintendo showed off the console for the very first time, and I do mean just the console, no games, no controller, no nothing. Nintendo was notoriously secretive, and for many third-party developers, they were left totally out of the loop when it came to the uh, yet-to-be-named Ultra 64's architecture. But one factor stood out above all. They were looking at that console, and they saw it. They saw it right there a cartridge slot. Despite every other console manufacturer making the leap to CD technology, Nintendo had put their foot down and said, no, 
we were remaining in the cartridge space. It allowed them to more easily oversee game releases because publishers bought the cartridges from Nintendo directly, and also it reduced piracy. But this was just six months shy of the PlayStation 1's release in Japan, a console that solely used extremely cheap CD storage. We're talking 75 cents to $1.10 a disc, and that is back in uh, 1994. I actually looked this up, that's what I found. And you can hold 700 megabytes of data on one disc for $1.10. Not bad. Which meant you could have all the music, full motion video, and voice acting you could ever want on top of the game. Basically, you could do whatever you wanted to do, at least that's what it felt like back in 1994, whereas Nintendo 64 cartridges could only hold max 64 megabytes. That's less than 10% of a CD if you're keeping track right there. And they would cost around $30 each. $30 each! To put that in perspective, that's nearly double the cost of an SNES cart for a publisher and developer. And you also have to factor in the price of 3D development, which was expensive. It was new and it was expensive. So let's really break this down. What this means, uh, because I feel this has been overly simplified over the years. Imagine, put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you're a developer that's, that's working primarily on 2D games. You know 3D is the future, but you've got a niche audience that allows you to turn a profit. So you're sticking with 2D games. That's, that's, that's your forte. Do you nearly double the cost of manufacturing or do you reduce the cost of manufacturing by 93%? Think about that. Let's say you're a developer that makes JRPGs, big lengthy games known for long cutscenes and tons of music. Are you going to limit yourself to 64 megabytes? Or do you save money and take advantage of full motion video and audio within 700 megabytes of space? Not to mention the Nintendo 64 didn't even have a sound chip. This is true, everything else had to be used to create sound. So even though it was a 64-bit processor with three times the speed of the PlayStation and nearly double the RAM, you'd be shaving off a lot of additional power just to have sound. So if we're keeping track, smaller developers can't afford it. Bigger developers are making fighting games and JRPGs, which are both better suited on the PlayStation and the Saturn because they have more space for animation and whatnot. If you're, and if you're, uh, uh, taking the dive into 3D development, you'll probably want a more flexible console with cheaper manufacturing costs. So, it was clear almost from the get-go that Nintendo's long-standing relationships with, with big developers like Konami, Capcom, Squaresoft, Enix, all of these franchises that they had helped grow over the past decade were going to be making the jump to PlayStation. Obviously, it was a big deal when, you know, Final Fantasy jumped to PlayStation, but even things then been out in forever. What? Metal Gear is going over there? What? They don't even make those games anymore. And yet they did. Which meant Nintendo was going to have to develop something incredible. Something special. You guessed it. A 3D Yoshi game. I'm serious. I'm serious. This is something that never gets talked about. Let's talk about Argonaut Games. And what they wanted to do. Because they just helped develop Star Fox 1 and 2. They had helped produce 3D games for Nintendo. And they were eager to make the jump to the Nintendo 64. Now, according to Argonaut employees, they actually had a prototype that they showed to Miyamoto, which was of a 3D Yoshi game. And he was like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Miyamoto also thought of an idea maybe of using the FX chip on the SNES to create a 3D Mario game. But that obviously never happened. Either way, Mario 64 would be the end result. But they never talk about that Yoshi game. 
but we will later on. But this created, uh, Mario 64 created a giant open world, unlike anything that games had seen before. Uh, just the, the amount of polish and charm and the use of camera angles. Uh, it gets a lot of credit, sometimes too much credit, but it's, it's, it's a fantastic game. But this 3D game also meant that they had to drastically change the Nintendo 64's controller design to work with Mario 64. And so Miyamoto oversaw that process and designed a three-prong approach for devices that basically caused a headache for nearly every other developer. And so the Nintendo 64 launched in Japan on June 23rd, 1996. While sales numbers are hard to come by, it's clear something might have tipped off Nintendo that they were slowing down a bit as they dropped the price from $250 to $200 for the Western release shortly thereafter. Even with the successful debut of the console, it was already outpaced in two major markets. The PlayStation 1 dominated America and Japan, and even the humble Sega, Sega? <laughs> even the humble Sega Saturn managed to outsell the Nintendo 64 in Japan. People loved RPGs. They loved fighting games. Go take a look at uh, Nintendo 64. They didn't exactly have those. Uh, by the end of its life, the Nintendo 64 only managed to sell 32 million units, a far cry from the SNES's 49 million. This is especially problematic considering how much the video game market grew in that period, with the PlayStation 1 selling over 102 million in its lifetime. Now granted, the PlayStation 1 continued production for much longer than the Nintendo 64, because once Nintendo jumped over to the GameCube, they dropped the 64, whereas PS1 was... Still in production even into the late 90s, I want to say, or the uh, late 2000s. So what happened? Well, for starters, the games were incredibly expensive. Not to mention Nintendo's output, output didn't leave much in the way of diversity in design. In fact, had it not been for Rare's GoldenEye 007, it's debatable if the Nintendo 64 would have sold as well as it did. The most popular types of games, as I've said over and over again, racing games, fighting games, RPGs, as well as experimental smaller titles. If you don't believe me, take a look at the best-selling Nintendo 64 games. Of course, there's Mario 64, so a platformer. And then it's Mario Kart, Super Smash Bros. And, uh, well, you can already see the problem right there. Because those were the, really the only big fighting games and big racing games right there. And yes, I know someone's going to bring up that Donald Duck racing game, or Mickey Mouse. A good game, but the sales are nowhere near what you would expect. Now, Nintendo put itself in the same position as Sega did with the Master System. While obviously more successful than the Master System, they were left with the bulk responsibility of game development, and no company, no matter how talented, can make up for an entire industry worth of talent. The Nintendo 64 is finally remembered. There is no way you can deny that. But when you break it down, it seemed to survive purely based off of name recognition. Sure, there were a handful of great games, but... Consoles are much more than their high watermarks. Without the odd entries, curiosities, failures, flawed classics, and sleeper hits, the Nintendo 64 was just left with droughts, long droughts, where nothing was happening. And there's no denying that the achievements made in Mario and Zelda were incredible, but those were two franchises that were protected in many ways. They were risk-averse even when going into 3D, and that's the reason Majora's Mask is so fondly remembered by Nintendo fans. Nintendo rarely let truly original ideas, truly challenging ideas into their console. So if you grew up with a Nintendo 64 and you loved it, good for you. Nothing wrong with that. But if you were there back in the 90s and you had the PlayStation and you had the 64, it wasn't nearly as much fun. Anyway, that exact same week, 
Marvel's Super Heroes was released on the PlayStation. This is a pretty big deal if you're into fighting games. Most people forget that the Marvel fighting game uh, actually was wedged between Marvel vs. Capcom and uh, X-Men. X-Men were the original uh, fighting game franchise Capcom had latched onto, and then they started bringing in more characters in this entry, like Captain America and Iron Man and Spider-Man. And how cool is that? It really is. Also that same week, Time Commando was released on the PlayStation. I only put this in here because I once thought it was the best looking game of all time, and if you Google it, it looks like a Tim and Eric sketch. Time Commando, Google it. I used to think that was the most beautiful game ever. Seriously, not lying. Technology has changed. <laughs> 21 years ago, this week, Croc, Legend of Gobos. This is kind of a popular game over in the UK, not very popular here in the United States. It was developed by Argonaut. Remember that Yoshi game we were talking about earlier? This is what it turned into. 22 years ago, on the Virtual Boy, Mario Clash was, re was released. If only Mario Clash wasn't released on the Game Boy, I'm sure more people would have fond memories of Mario Clash. It's basically a retooling of the original Mario Brothers game, except there's a back and forward panel. It's a lot of fun, you throw shells. There's ways to play it online, so look it up. 31 years ago, on the Famicom Disk System over in Japan, Castlevania was released. Now this segment has already gone on way too long. There's really not that much to say here. The first Castlevania isn't nearly as important as the sequels that would follow. Sure, it was a gothic action game, but that was already somewhat popularized by the arcade version of uh, Ghosts and Goblins. But unlike that game, Castlevania was actually good. Yes, Ghouls and Ghosts and Ghouls and Goblins. That, nah, not a good series. I don't enjoy those games, but Castlevania was amazing because it was focusing on the history of spooky creatures. Konami simply adapted universal horror film monsters into a game. Obviously there was Dracula, but there was also mummies and even a Frankenstein monster. <laughs> In fact, all the antagonists bore some resemblance to their movie counterparts with Medusa heads from Jason and the Argonauts and the Grim Reaper looking a lot like Igmar Bergman's uh, version from The Seventh Seal. This wasn't a hidden secret by any means. Even the title screen for the original Castlevania looked like a piece of film that would be going into a film reel. You know, it had the little holes up top, holes on the bottom. That didn't come out right. Uh, but this set the template for what Castlevania and its universe would be. Rather than inventing creatures of their own, the series would pay homage to the horror traditions all around the world. The castle itself would house all evil, not just things you would expect from Dracula. It would have mummies and, and, and mermen. And the mermen, obviously, those were from like a creature of the Black Lagoon. They were just taking inspiration from everywhere, and so playing Castlevania and identifying the creatures can be somewhat educational. Somewhat. But from a gameplay perspective, Castlevania was classic action. Tons of intense combat and a strategic use of sub-weapons like holy water, bibles, and crosses. But this actually brings up an interesting point about Castlevania. Had it been made in America, it's debatable how many Christian elements and Christian imagery would be featured in the game, especially when Nintendo of America removed most of that for the Western release. But over in Japan, where the Christian population makes up for less than 1% of the whole population of Japan, it's more or less treated like Greek mythology, carving out the theology and retaining the iconography. I'll be uh, spitting more fire later, if you want to hear it. And perhaps that's why Castlevania has endured for so long. It seems to stand on its own terms of gothic action, keeping the world dark and depressing, 
and gloomy while embedding a sense of righteousness on behalf of the protagonist and the player. Not quite heroism, but instead responsibility and duty and tradition. And this puts the narrative progression in a sort of natural cycle where evil rises and defe is defeated every hundred years. What exactly would happen if Dracula took over the world or if he escaped the castle? It's hard to tell. It never happens. And frankly, I don't want to know. Instead, the sequences play out just as they did before. The order of the castle shifts and the Belmonts change, but the result is always the same. And in that pattern, this means that each title feels complete just as it begins, as if you, the player, are living history. And it did all of that while still having a goofy name, which is pretty amazing. But that's going to have to do it for Strong History. Good show. 200 show this episode is long i knew i was gonna make it longer because it was the 200th episode but man it's long um hmm all right well that's gonna have to do it for the pressure cast so i think it is time that we close out the show this is the end of episode 200 it's been a long time coming, but I do want to give out a, sh a few shout-outs to Brian, Steve, Brandon, and Justin. They've been on the show before. And of course, a shout-out to you, dear listener and viewer. It's been a really weird four years. I often work so much on this show, and or whatever I'm working on, just send it out. I don't often stop and look back on, on what I've made, so I don't really know how the pressure cast turned out. Uh, frankly, it feels like I've made no progress whatsoever. <laughs> It's just what it feels like. But when I stop and I think about it, I've gone from really crappy PS2 microphones to USB microphones. And now I have an audio interface with high-end microphones. It's my voice, not the microphone. You can't fix that. I've gone from cheap webcams to GoPro to prosumer camcorders. I've made the jump from outdated Mac minis and GarageBand and Windows Movie Maker to a line of professional-grade editing equipment. And of course... I've gone from a cramped studio space to this green screen right here with a series of lights and post-production. That's all just stuff, obviously, but each leap to new technology offered a new challenge, many of which I was completely unqualified to make. I seriously don't think the me from four years ago could make the show I make today. Even the me from two years ago could make the show that I make today. Frankly, I've never been sure of what I'm doing. I just kind of do it. And each time I make something, uh, you know, that I think is fine. But in the process is where I've become more familiar. You know, problems and hassles crop up every single time, which is to say that it never gets easier. And that's a good thing, if you ask me. I don't know if the pressure cast has gotten any better over the years, and really that's not for me to say. I'm not sure, you know, if it ever became the show that I wanted to be, and that's okay too. But what I'm trying to say is the moment uh, that, that the show stops being difficult, it's the show that I want to stop making. The point is, if I can get on the shallow end of deep for just a moment, life is a struggle. It will always be a struggle. Everything is hard and no one has any idea what they're doing. And trust me when I say that no one is qualified to do what they do. They're all human beings, which means that they're lazy, or mentally or physically or both. I'm speaking from experience here. I never want to do anything. And failure, or the possibility of failure, will always encourage and favor lazy tendencies. But this only leads to boredom, and boredom is the worst possible outcome of any life. Every single day we are fleeing boredom, we are hanging out with friends, we are watching TV shows, we are watching movies, reading books, and yes, we listen to podcasts just to escape 
boredom. But if you're listening this far, especially this far, that means you like video games. And I'll tell you why you like video games, because they really do cure boredom. You learn to adapt, and to change, and to challenge yourself. And even though we have our favorites, you like to move on to the next game, to repeat the process of entering the unknown. Yes, even if it's another Call of Duty or Madden. It's about challenging yourself. So I would recommend you take that mindset and apply it to whatever it is you want to do. Even if you don't have the equipment, even if you don't have the skill, um, do the most interesting thing you're capable of right now. No matter how boring your situation or environment is, just try it. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and commit random acts of violence or do drugs, because that's really hard to build off in a productive way, but I'm saying stick with it. Stick with that interesting thing until it gets boring, until it gets easy, and then move on to the next thing. But please, whatever you do, Embrace the shame of being terrible at something and escape boredom. Because at the end of the day, your time is limited. But no matter how stuck you may feel, your opportunities really are endless. And as always, the pressure cast is forever. Bye guys. Welcome to the first episode of the Pressure Cast. If you are looking for any episodes previous to this episode, please do not. This is the first one. I promise you, you want to listen to this one.